Before we get started this week, we want to acknowledge that language around differences in sexual development is still evolving. As always, here at the Incubator, we strive to use language that is inclusive and respectful. Thank you. This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Daphne, how are you? I'm doing well. We're getting there. Do you realize, by the way, that this is episode 57? I know. We've gotten a lot of work done these last few months. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and also considering that on our other podcast, The Incubator, we're at about episode 50 now. Um, the fact that in such a short amount of time, we were able to catch up and, and that gets a lot of content. So um, I'm, I'm not saying this to elicit pity or thanks from the audience, but Are I you just... Sure? No, I'm very proud of the fact that we were able, yeah. like this was an endeavor that I didn't know if we we're going to be able to keep up. So when I'm That's typing it. in in the computer, episode 57, because I have to do like the show notes mm -hmm. as we're talking, um, it's like, man, 57, that's a, that's a big number. Okay, but we're doing endocrinology this week and we're starting off today with question 11. That's right. Uh, Daphna, a neonatologist meets with a pregnant woman at 36 weeks gestation with Graves' disease. Her condition has been well controlled and there have been no signs of fetal distress. Which of the following statements about the effect of maternal graves on the fetus or infant is false. Choice A, small, a small number of infants may develop primary hypothyroidism. Choice B, exophthalmos can occur in affected infants. Choice C, fetal hydrops can occur in affected fetuses. Choice D, Fetal hyperthyroidism typically develops during the second half of the gestation. Choice E, half of the neonate born to mothers with Graves' disease develop hyperthyroidism. Okay. I feel like this is, this is like super high yield. I feel like they love it to is. ask about these it questions. Is. Yeah. I don't know if they get to count it as endocrine or MFM, but still. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> so a small number of infants may develop primary hypothyroidism after the, the Graves' disease. So I think people feel like this is a trick, but even if you have Graves' antibodies, they could be stimulating or um, inhibit, inhibitory. So um, that's true. Um, exophthalmos, fetal hydrops, um, those are all possibilities. And then fetal hyperthyroidism develops during the second half of gestation. I feel like that's true because of that's when you get like, you know, fetal tachycardia, but <laughs> I wasn't sure. So <laughs> E, half of the neonates born to mothers with Graves' disease develop hyperthyroidism. And that's wrong because it's, I mean, it's the minority of babies who will develop thyroid disease. So. Okay. Yeah. E, that is the correct answer. It is the false uh, statement. So I think the first thing we should talk about is what you alluded to in, in choice A, right? When it says that the babies can develop hypothyroidism. I think it's very important to understand that when we're talking about Graves' disease in the, in the mother, you have these TSH receptor antibodies that can pass on to the baby. And they are called TRABs, right? TSH receptor antibodies. And 
their IgGs, they cross the placenta during the second half of pregnancy, and during the third trimester, their levels go down. What's important is that you have two kinds of TRABs, right? You have the TSIs and the TBAs. The TSIs are the TSH receptor stimulating antibodies, and the TBAs are the TSH receptor blocking antibodies. So you have these, these two antibodies in a sort of balance. But if there's any imbalance, then the baby could start developing either hyper, if the stimulating antibodies are more uh, numerous, or hypothyroidism, if the blocking antibodies are uh, more predominant. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it, I mean, it usually still is hyperthyroidism, but hypothyroidism. Yes, but it's still possible. Yeah. And I think that this is where this question, I think to me, choice A was the biggest trap because you're like, well, if you have graves, then it's hyper. It cannot mm -hmm. be hypo. And you're right that it, it's not common, but it is very much possible. And you'll see that every uh, source that you use to review for the test will have that in the answer choice because it's, 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 a, it's an easy trap to fall into. Um, so Graves' disease occurs in about 0.1 to 0.4% of all pregnancies, of, although only one, about 1% 1 of neonates born to women with Graves' disease will clinically be affected. Um, we talked about the passage of antibodies, um, but, and like you said, um, most, in, most infants will develop hyperthyroidism. The evidence of fetal disease can be apparent even if the pregnant uh, woman has inactive Graves' disease. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very important because the fetus is still exposed to maternal antibodies. So the typical scenario that you might see in a question is um, an, expe uh, an expecting mother is, is having had a history of Graves' disease, had uh, removal, the destruction of the thyroid gland, and she's fine but her antibodies are still circulating. They have no target inside her body, but once the baby is uh, in, in the womb, then suddenly these antibodies can pass to the baby and uh, create uh, hyperhypothyroidism. Intrauterine signs of fetal disease include fetal tachycardia, growth restriction, and fetal hydrops. The fetal goiter may also be present. Post-birth, the symptoms of hyperthyroidism in the newborn are usually apparent within the first 10 days of life, although clinical symptoms can present up to four to six weeks of life. That's always something also that I think is very testable. Mm -hmm. uh, thyrotoxicosis usually resolves by two months of age, but may last as long as five months. The range is actually three to six months. So it could last for a while. The symptoms um, of neonatal hyperthyroidism are variable and include increased irritability, jitteriness, periorbital edema, and exophthalmos. Uh, don't Google those pictures. Tachycardia, pulmonary hypertension, weight loss, diarrhea, sweating and flushing, advanced bone age, hepatosplenomegaly, bruising and petechiae, and a goiter, as we've mentioned. Um, infants with evidence of thyrotoxicosis should be managed immediately with anti-thyroid therapies and symptomatic relief can be provided using better blockade. Uh, there's some anti-thyroid options out there, which include propyl thyroyuracil and carbimazole. Um, yeah, that's... That's it for this question. Okay. Question 15. Um, a neonatologist is called to the delivery room of a term infant with respiratory distress. The infant's initial physical examination reveals mild respiratory distress and an unexpected finding of ambiguous external genitalia. Review the records reveals that an amniocentesis has been done showing a 46XX karyotype. Which of the following etiologies is least likely to be attributed to an over-viralized uh, XX infant? 
Oh, I have to give you the answers. Why yes. do I always forget? <laughs> uh, okay. Sorry. You guys can't see the answers. <laughs> A, 5-alpha reductase deficiency. B, 11-beta hydroxylase deficiency. C, 21-hydroxylase deficiency. D, aromatase deficiency. Or E, um, maternal androgen and progesterone therapy. Okay, so I think this is very important to look through these questions, uh, especially when they're talking about the ambiguous external genitalia uh, for that karyotype information, right? Because uh, if you look through the Brodsky and Martin review books, it's there's a whole different differential whether you're dealing with okay. an overvirilized male, a uh, female, I'm sorry, or an undervirilized male, okay. right? These the differential will be different. So in this case, um, in the choices that we have, um, I picked. Um, so I picked the one that I know to be associated with a male karyotype, an XY karyotype, right? And that was 5-alpha reductase deficiency. Uh, the way, the <laughs> way, um, uh, the way, uh, the way I remember 5-alpha five, five reductase deficiency is that the development is a TAT-FAR, right? Not TAD. TAT far mm -hmm. because it's TAT testicles at 12. That's sort of the nickname of the disease mm. uh, because they develop uh, the testicles appear later uh, in childhood and far because it's five alpha reductase. Um, and, and I know that this only affects males because of the fact that it involves testicles uh, appearing later around uh, 10, 12 years old. And the other one that's usually associated with females is, is aromatase deficiency. And I think of like uh, a woman putting on perfume uh, it, that gives a good aroma. And so that's how I, I sort of. Uh, that's very gender normative of you. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I am not, and I'm not putting my view of society, like do not assume that the way I remember these things for the test is how I view, my, I view society. But listen, this has helped me, number one, take yeah, the test. Yeah. And answer this goddamn question. So choice A, 5-alpha reductase deficiency. Well, that is correct. And and like you said, so... And you um, know what? Actually, let me tell you something. The okay. reason, let me tell you something. The reason is, I, you know how many cliches there are about French people putting on perfume? And it's not that we don't shower, but it is true. Like, like males and females put on perfume in France. It's very normal. It's very, yeah, so very now healthy. you're confusing us. Now, how are they going to know this aromatase deficiency? Just, just, just <laughs> skip that portion of the podcast. <laughs> okay, so eleven beta hydroxylase deficiency, twenty one hydroxylase deficiency, aromatase deficiency, and prenatal androgen and progesterone exposure of an XX um, infant would um, show overvirilized. Uh, genitalia, but you're right. The 5-alpha reductase deficiency um, would not. So 5-alpha reductase deficiency is an autosomal recessive disorder that limits the conversion of testosterone to dihydrotestosterone. Male, male uh, infants with a 5-alpha reductase deficiency have ambiguous genitalia with appropriately differentiated Wolfian structures because they have testosterone. So if you remember, testosterone um, helps develop those Wolfian structures. They have an absence of um, Eulerian-derived structures uh, because they were able to make anti-Eulerian hormone. They have a small phallus, a urogenital sinus with perineal hypospadias, and a blind vaginal pouch. Later in life, 
and they have progressive virilization uh, with decreased facial hair and small prostates. But like you said, um, they do develop those features, testicles at 12, just much, much later. Um, and what else did I want to tell you? Oh, they will have also late descent of the testes to this kind of uh, labioscrotal location at the time of puberty. Um, it can affect uh, female or XX infants, but they will have a normal external phenotype. Thus, the infant in this vignette with a 46XX chromosomal analysis is not likely to have 5-alpha reductase deficiency. And then we've talked about some of these, but let's just do a brief review again. The aromatase deficiency prevents conversion of testosterone to estradiol. Thus, androstenedione is not ultimately converted to estrone. And these um, affected uh, female infants or XX will still have Mullerian duct structures and absent Wolfian duct structures, um, but they will have ambiguous genitalia, predominantly it's clitoromegaly. Um, let's see. If the fetus is exposed, if the XX or female fetus is exposed to maternal androgen and progesterone therapy between 8 to 13 weeks of gestation, um, this fetus is also at risk for ambiguous genitalia, including posterior fusion of the vagina, scrotalization of the labia, and some fusion of their urethral folds. Um, if this uh, XX fetus is exposed to these hormones after 13 weeks of, weeks of gestation, they have pretty, pretty typical external genitalia, but the fetus may still develop clitoromegaly. Um, and then we talked about 11-beta and 21-hydroxylase, um, I think, pretty thoroughly yesterday. That's correct. Okay. Good job. Thanks. I'm saying that for myself. I, I know. You answered the question. <laughs> <laughs> question 17. Um, which of – you know, it feels like you're an inventor. When you have, like, a little tweak to remember something and it works, it's like when you have that, oh, my That's God, right. it's uh -huh. alive. <laughs> it works. Uh, question 17. Which of the following statements is true about infants of diabetic mother? Choice A, fetal hyperinsulinemic state restricts substrate availability for surfactant biosynthesis. Choice B, fetal hyperinsulinism decreases erythropoiesis. Choice C, infants of diabetic mothers with a small left colon have chronic difficulty with intestinal obstruction. Choice D, infants of diabetic mothers with cardiomyopathy frequently have clinical signs of heart failure. Okay, so we're looking for the true answer. Um, <laughs> a was a very long answer. Fetal hyperinsulinemic state restricts substrate availability for surfactant biosynthesis. I don't know. I'm not sure what that means, but I do know <laughs> that babies uh, who are IDM have this kind of functional surfactant deficiency. So I guess that must be what that means. I never thought about why that happens. Right. But Whether it happens like that or not, I don't know. But <laughs> but that's a reasonable hypothesis. Um, fetal hyperinsulism decreases erythropoiesis. I know that to be false because um, those babies tend to be polycythemic. Um, and then these answers, infants with small left colon and infants with cardiomyopathy, um, in general, even babies who are exposed, have these problems, tend to be asymptomatic. So I went with A, even though I, I wasn't with sure. A, correct. Their, their surfactant production is messed up. 
That was choice A. <laughs> Infants of diabetic mother have a four to six-fold increase in surfactant deficiency as a result of decreased surfactant production. Um, and yeah, so fetal hyperinsulinism is associated with an increased erythropoiesis. We know that, right? They tend to have higher mm -hmm. hemoglobins, uh, resulting in polycythemia and indirect hyperbilirubinemia. Thickening of the interventricular septum or left or right ventricular wall that occurs in cardiomyopathy of infants of diabetic mother is usually asymptomatic, regresses on its own um, during the first uh, postnatal year. And then finally, the other choice talked about a small left colon that can occur in infants of diabetic mother, and that's usually a transient anomaly. Um, yeah, so that's, that's pretty much it. Let me see if I had anything else uh, to talk about. I mean, we've talked about... Um, We've talked about infants of diabetic mother quite some time. I mean, um, basically, the way Brodsky and Martin divided the effects on the neonates of infants of diabetic mother, which I think can be very helpful, is that you have some overall issues like polyhydramnios, preterm mm -hmm. birth, perinatal depression, large first gestational age, some organomegaly. And then they have different systems. They have endocrine and electrolytes, pulmonary, cardiac, CNS, and heme. Um, and from the endocrine and electrolytes, since that's the topic of the day, is... Um, they can have hyperplasia and hypertrophy of the pancreatic islet cells. We talked about the transient hyperinsulinism and the neonatal hypoglycemia that uh, follows. They also have early neonatal hypocalcemia, secondary to a decreased uh, placental calcium transfer, decreased PTH secretion, hypercalcitonemia, hypomagnesemia, and decreased calcium absorption. From the pulmonary standpoint, that was the question. They have surfactant deficiency. Cardiac, we spoke about that uh, yesterday. They have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but they could have structural defect like VSD, TGA, ASD, hypoplastic left ventricle, double outlet right ventricle, truncus arteriosus, in that order. Um, they could have neural tube defects. They could have CNS anomalies as well. And then we talked about polycythemia. So, um, and then we have, uh, from the GI standpoint, I, I don't know if I mentioned that, sorry, GI, we have uh, the small left colon, we have sometimes duodenal atresia, imperforated anus, situs inversus, inversus. and then in the, in the genital urinary section, we can have ureteral uh, duplication, renal agenesis, hydronephrosis, and renal vein thrombosis. Now, the one thing that I think is an important one is that in the skeletal section, no. the caudal regression syndrome... Mm -hmm. Dr. Brodsky and Martin actually underlined that fact is the most common congenital anomaly. So something that I had highlighted as well. Um, mm. Yeah. All right. That's it for me. I'm going to stop there before it become, uh, becomes an issue. That was very thorough. You're welcome. Okay. <laughs> uh, question 23. You are reviewing the newborn state screening results of a 14-day-old infant born at 26 weeks gestation who is currently maintained on room air, continuous positive airway pressure, and receiving full enteral feedings. The screen identifies a low thyroxine concentration with a normal TSH. All of the following may be consistent with this, with this infant's findings except... A, although thyroxine or T4 levels are decreased, free T4 level may be normal. B, decreased stores of thyroid iodine. C, increased production of reverse uh, T3 because of illness with correspondingly lower amounts of T4. D, infants born less than 31 weeks gestation may not have an increase in T4 levels and may actually have a decrease in T4 in the first one to two weeks of life. And choice E is all of the above. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. No worries. 
So this is a, um, a baby that seems to have um, hypothyroidism with low T4 and normal TSH. So choice A said that uh, even though T4 are low, free T4 may be normal. Um, I think that's correct. Decreased stores of thyroid iodine, I think that's correct too. Uh, let's see, increased production of RT3 because of illness with corresponding lower amount of T4. Um, I think new, I think the, the fetus converts a lot of its T4 into RT3, so, so mm -hmm. I would say why not. Um, infants born less than 31 weeks gestation may not have an increase in T4 levels and may actually have a decrease in T4 in the first one to two weeks of life. I think that is true. I'm going to say E. I'm not super confident about all these answer choices, but I, I mean, they all sound okay. I'm going to say E. Yeah. I mean, you really only had to pick two of them were true to make you pick E. That's right? true. That's true. Because if two That's of them true. are true, then they are, then you can't pick two of them. So, um, and so this baby doesn't, does not, I just want to clarify something, does not have congenital hypothyroidism because we would expect like an increase in TSH in that picture, but the baby does have low free T4. So there are multiple etiologies for low, um, low thyroxine or T4 concentrations in a premature infant. I'm sorry, let me say that again. This baby has low T4, not low free T4. Um, and there are multiple etiologies for low T4 concentrations in a premature infant. Similar to term infants, the preterm infants have this surge in TSH um, at the time of birth with an associated increase in T4 concentrations. However, the premature infants' peak levels may not be as high, um, and some premature infants may have low T4 levels, but the free T4 may be normal as a result of lower levels of thyroid-binding globulin or abnormal protein binding. Decreased thyroidal iodine stores can also be a contributing factor of a low T4 in premature infants, um, although this is more common in regions that have a lot of iodine deficiency. Mm -hmm. Premature infants may have an increase in reverse T3 because of increased activity of deiodinase D3 associated with illness. I mean, that's basically the hallmark of sicu thyroid syndrome. This may lead to a correspondingly lower amounts of T4. Sometimes infants born below 31 weeks gestation may exhibit a decrease in T4 levels during the first few weeks of life. Um, clearance of maternal T4 from the neonatal circulation can also contribute to the initially low T4 levels in premature infants. Finally, small for gestational age infants can have lower free T4 levels um, regardless of prematurity um, related to, somehow to the cause of their growth restriction. Okay. 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 Time for more? One more. Okay, let's do it. Question 33. An infant is born at 39 weeks gestation. On exam, infant has ambiguous genitalia with a microphallus and non-palpable testes. Um, question is, which of the following contributes most to phallic enlargement and testicular descent? Choice A, estradiol. Choice B, fetal follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH. Choice C, fetal luteinizing, oh, fetal LH, not going to sing. Uh, choice D, malarian-inhibiting substance, MIS. Choice E, placental human chorionic gonadotropin, HCG. Okay, when I looked at these, 
this question. I did not see any answer that I, I did not find the answer I was looking for in these mm. answer choices um, based on the graphs that I had been pouring over <laughs> processing before. Um, but it wasn't estradiol. Um, I knew it wasn't Mullerian inhibiting substance because its job is just to inhibit the Mullerian structures. And I didn't think it was HCG. So I was kind of between FSH and LH, even though I honestly couldn't remember what they did. Yeah. <laughs> but I but I went with LH. I'm a good I'm, guesser, I guess. <laughs> for the people who can't guess, this is so infuriating. <laughs> Um, yeah, that is correct. LH was the right answer. So testosterone and Mullerian inhibiting substance, um, MIS, also called anti-Mullerian hormone or Mullerian inhibiting factor, are produced by the testis and stimulate Wolfian duct differentiation and Mullerian duct regression, respectively, right? And if, and if you have any issues remembering that, the way I remember it is that uh, the, the, the evolution of a fetus into a male, usually you think wolf, right? Wolf is more associated, like makes you feel like um, a male. And then Mullerian starts with an M, like mother, female, that, that could help you remember which one is which. Local conversion of testosterone to dihydrotestosterone by 5-alpha reductase leads to the fusion of the labiosacrotal folds and formation of the scrotum and penis. So in the first trimester, Testosterone production from the lighting cells, which we'll talk about uh, later in the week, is driven by placental HCG. Fetal LH secretion increases during the second trimester and stimulates phallic enlargement and testicular descent. Estradiol and fetal FSH secretions are not involved in any of these processes. Uh, so yeah, fetal LH was the correct answer. Now, yeah. <laughs> it's a complicated system, really. <laughs> the yeah. whole thing. What, what's, what's interesting to me from a philosophical standpoint is that if those substances are not being secreted, technically the, the normative path for any fetus is to become female, right? Right, the default. Yeah. The default, which is very, very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, yeah. All right then, Daphna, that was fun. See you tomorrow. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.